You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organisation pursuing real learning, original scholarship and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of From Under the Rubble. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me as always is our guest, Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Well, it's always a pleasure. Before our episode started taping today, Dr. Fleming, we were discussing what we should call today's uh, episode. Was it going to be uh, heresies about democracy or things about democracy that you thought you knew? And there, I, I suppose we could settle on considerations regarding democracy in America, uh, sort of adaptation of de Tocqueville. So why don't you get us started, Dr. Fleming, with, with what, what elements you'd like us to consider today? Well, anyone who uh, ever had to sit through a physics, uh, sorry, a uh, civics class or, you know, an American government class, uh, we learned certain things. We learned that uh, America was a democratic country. We learned that uh, there are a couple of features of democracy, quite apart from the the separation of powers and and, uh, direct elections and indirect elections. Also, democracy rests on... uh, party government, that is, ever-changing parties and coalitions on the one hand, and on the other hand, a free press. Now, when people say to me, uh, you you oppose party government and you oppose, uh, uh, you you ridicule the free press, aren't you undermining uh, American democracy? And the most obvious thing to say is that there's, there's no such thing as American democracy. It never was, it never it is not now and never will be a democratic government. It started out as a kind of uh, oligarchic republic, and it began to degenerate into uh, a coercive empire in the 1860s. And ever since then, it has gone more and more into being some kind of um, totalitarian socialist state, but based on the fiction of the will of the people. But let's, uh, we'll talk about that some other time. We'll also set aside political parties for another time when when we'll begin by considering the maxim of the Marquis of Halifax who said, the best faction is a kind of conspiracy against a nation. That is, political parties uh, polarize segments of society into competing for power and they hold that power at the expense of the general population and of the nation itself. So, <clears throat> if we take all that uh, off the table and go back to the notion that a free press is essential to our, a constitutional order, uh, where, where do we get with that? Well, people will usually begin by quoting the First Amendment to the American Constitution that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and petition the government. So isn't freedom of speech and press, people will say, isn't, isn't isn't that one of the individual liberties that define uh, our country. And, uh, you know, Jefferson says repeatedly uh, that, uh, for example, that uh, uh, it's important for uh, the population of a democracy to be well-informed in order that they be free, and therefore a free press is essential. 
And <clears throat> if our liberty depends on the freedom of the press, then uh, we certainly can't have <coughs> any liberty because our press is not now, has never been free. It's important when talking about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to realize that every clause in the Bill of Rights was written as a response to some abuse, real or perceived, that had been committed by the British government. <clears throat> in the, uh, the colonists were not trying to wage a revolution in, uh, in order to change the nature of the government. What they wanted to do is to hold on to the system of government which they had, in which they felt that the British king and parliament were abusing. The English had, had, uh, had established, in the course of the 17th and 18th century, uh, the right to free political speech, the right to petition the government without getting arrested, and the right to express political opinions and newspapers. When the English government shut down newspapers in New England and refused to accept petitions, uh, this was felt to be uh, tyrannical and it justified uh, rebellion against the government. This was a restriction not on all forms of government. It was not uh, an assertion of an individual liberty. It was a restriction on Congress. The framers of the Constitution uh, believe that Congress was the ultimate expression of sovereign authority. Today, we would be more inclined to say that was the president. And today, it would be reasonable to include all branches of government under the First Amendment. But there's nothing in the First Amendment to suggest that state and local authorities <clears throat> could not restrict free speech. And if you look at honest leftists, there's a... Uh, African nationalist professor Akil Reed at Yale, and even he admits that the Bill of Rights does not protect individual rights of citizens, but rather the corporate rights of states and communities. So, what would you conclude? What would yeah? Well, I think we should just revisit a couple amendments, Dr. Fleming, because everybody knows about the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and they know that they can take the Fifth Amendment, though they may not know the wording of it. But beyond that, it, it gets hazy. I mean, for example, there's the Third Amendment. You do one of our uh, episodes uh, for the Fleming Foundation and go around and ask people, so tell us what the Third Amendment is. And they're unlikely to say, no soldiers shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. You know, that's an interesting one because that's something the New Englanders wanted. In fact, there was very little quartering of troops in New England. There were officers who threatened it, and uh, but it almost never happened. Where it did happen was in South Carolina. But but it was a, it was certainly uh, considered uh, an abuse. The English view of the quartering of troops was that look, we're sending soldiers here to protect the peace and to protect you from Indian attacks. If you're not going to pay for barracks to be erected, which the, which the uh, Massachusetts men and most of the colonials were dragging their heels on, then we have to find some way. And so what they did is they were taking over. Uh, unused houses and unused uh, facilities, but uh, this the, to uh, Americans used to the notion that a man's home is his castle. This was felt to be uh, an outrage. It was an outrage in the in South Carolina, but uh, the New Englanders were uh, making a lot of fuss about nothing. 
Indeed, today, Dr. Fleming, there's such a fuss about, quote unquote, supporting the troops that you would think that they would want to overturn this amendment and say, yes, we should be able to host troops in our home. Uh, there's such a there's been such a turnaround in, in how the military is looked at from colonial times to now that uh, this amendment almost seems I would think would seem odd if you were to read it out to somebody and say, what is the Third Amendment? Well, let me read it to you. No, and uh, well, the the uh, the amendment protecting us from uh, illegal search and seizure, for example. Well, um, first of all, the use of eminent domain in the past 150 years has been an outrageous abuse of power uh, by federal and state governments. Especially by the federal government has used it for huge, vast amounts of territory, which it has seized uh, illegally from the people of the states. But also, uh, it's a constantly being abused by uh, by police orders that you know under under Nixon there was this no knock uh, procedure uh, developed by the Attorney General John Mitchell where they can kick your door down and shoot your dog and then say oops uh, we made a mistake but we're we're above the law and we can't be prosecuted it was that by the way that alarmed uh, Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina who was later on, of course, uh, the uh, head of the Watergate committee that uh, investigated uh, the the rather trivial problems, as Sam Irvin knew, of the uh, bugging the Democratic National Committee. For Irvin, the real problem was the Nixon administration's ab- abuse of authority in ca- uh, against the Fourth Amendment. We also have the Seventh Amendment. In suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Which I think is interesting because they're actually enshrining uh, something that would not last the test of time, something, uh, a relation to currency, whatever, $20, <laughs> real threatening there, $20. Of course, we think about that in terms of our money. You know, I, it, uh, what we should do is to say tw- tw- 20 gold dollars, <laughs> because uh, the, uh, uh, this is before paper money. You know, they, they were, states were issuing script, but this was real. But they're talking about real money, and I don't know what $20 is. It's certainly in the thousands. Well, I don't know what the spot price of gold is off the top of my head, but let's call it 1000 it, It's It's never too far from that, at least in my recent memory. So 1020 that's $20,000, which it actually turns out to be quite a sizable sum. Yes, it's 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 uh, enormous, enormous. But to go back to uh, a, a point the, about the, uh, the First Amendment, if you applied the First Amendment to contemporary circumstances today, meaning the federal government cannot restrict communication, what does this tell you about the federal about the FCC? It means the FCC is an unconstitutional agency, an expression of government tyranny. The, there's no right of the federal government to interfere whatsoever in the press. That right belongs to the states and to the communities that were felt to be created by the states. So the first thing we do if we wanted to have a free press in America is we would 
uh, we would get rid of all the agencies and rules. Fortunately, we did get rid of the uh, the fairness doctrine, which said that uh, you know a, a program or network had to give equal time. I heard a very amusing program the other day where the uh, a bunch of left wing editors were sitting around and they want somebody from the New York Times said, you know, it's a disgrace. People listen to these right wing radio shows where they don't have to hear an opposite opinion. Where and, and of course by def, by implication, National Public Radio, pub, public broadcasting, NBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, consistently give the opposition of equal time to present their point of view. Uh, I, when's the last time you heard a a, a real right winger on NPR? Sam Francis came on once. I th- I didn't know this was coming, and I was listening. I almost choked on my martini olive. <laughs> Well, you have a stronger constitution than I do, Dr. Fleming. I just can't listen to NPR anymore. Well, I can't well, I can't listen to it now, not because of the uh, their political opinions, uh which which continue to move leftward, but the continuing stultification of the American people is beautifully reflected in the uh, in the press, I mean these and the the people on NPR cannot speak standard English. They have no knowledge of history or law or any other useful subject, and so it's like listening to uh, grammar school children, you know, d- debating the merits of Plato versus Aristotle. All right, Doctor Fleming. So leaving aside factionalism, political parties. Uh taking power in the name of the people. These are things that I think we can cover in future episodes. Let's go back to the idea of, again, the so-called free press and the public, because people are going to argue, or at least some are going to argue, that people have a right to the information that the press, and only the press, can provide. Yeah. Well, you know, the... Uh, the, the one of the earliest answers to this was given by Oscar Wilde. You know, Oscar Wilde is always quoted as being a witty but irresponsible somebody. He's very funny and paradoxical like Chesterton, but it's not really true. The trouble with Oscar Wilde is it's almost always true. And so, for example, he said, the public have an insatiable curiosity to know everything except what is worth knowing. Journalism, conscious of this and having tradesmanlike habits, supplies their demands. So they they give us, uh, and this is true even of science programs, they give us everything not worth knowing. And um, there's a NPR has a wonderful program on uh, on social science. It's a feature. And one week they actually had the nerve to report a recent study that showed that 90% of uh, the findings of social scientists could not be replicated. In other words, they're entirely bogus. But they went right back a couple of days later, and they were reporting more of the bogus stories. My I had a Greek professor named Walton Morris, and he always he always referred to it as the so-called social so-called sciences, because they're not social. They have nothing to do with normal human social life, and they certainly have nothing to do with science. But to go back to your point about the... We, we, we all want, that by we all, I mean, we've been told since kindergarten that we want that voters should be well-informed. And how can they be well-informed unless they get, from, they get their information from uh, a free press? And the answer is that there's no such thing as a well-informed voter. I mean, they're, they're, it's a, to, in, lar- in large numbers, they're as mythical as the chimera or the unicorn. Dr. Fleming, I'm thinking of this meme that goes around the internet a lot, and it's Gene Wilder in his Willy Wonka outfit, and he's 
got his hand resting on his chin, and I can see the meme. Tell me about the so-called informed voter. (laughs) The vast majority of voters on the right as much as on the left are the low-information voters that Rush Limbaugh ridicules, but does his best to preserve and encourage by handing out a steady stream of nonsense, you know, on... on, on American law and American history, people at the very best in a in a in a in a relatively free political society, people vote for their own interests. Taxpayers vote want to lower taxes. Tax consumers, by which I mean welfare recipients, teachers, bureaucrats, and politicians, welfare consumers want to raise taxes. Uh, you know that that so that's a reasonable basis on which to vote. Members of Congress have no clue about foreign affairs. None of them knows any history, much less of foreign language. Bill Clinton, on the eve of bombing uh, Serbia, could not tell the difference, as you could see from his speeches, between the Balkan and the Baltic states. And he was outdone in his geographical, political, historical ignorance by President Obama. These are people who vote on war and peace and they are uh, they 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 remind one of Will Rogers, who said, "All I know is what I read in the papers." Poor man. It's a good thing Will Rogers was raised as a cowboy because he actually knew some practical things. American media, working along with school teachers and professors, ensure that the American citizens and voters are the least informed political class in the history of the human race. The most important step we could take to improve our country, in fact, is to restrict the right to vote to net taxpayers. In other words, people who, uh, uh, who pay out more than they receive. That would mean, for example, President Obama could not have voted. Uh, well, we also need to shut down public education, including state universities, which are responsible for the ignorance and stupidity of the American voting class and burn most of the books written in the past hundred years. Well, I think we could have TV, but we should restrict it to what Americans really want, which is cooking shows, soap operas, and pornography. And, you know, these are far more harmless than the attempt to have public affairs broadcasting and serious discussion of events. The, uh, you know, the, uh, my my favorite is the claim to be objective. If I've been interviewed many, many, many times in the press and, uh, and some of them, I I will say did a fair job, but but it's a small minority. And when I tell them, I don't want to talk to them because they're liars. They say, oh no, we're objective. And in fact, you know, there's the great Walter Lippmann. There can be no higher law in journalism than to tell the truth and to shame the devil. Well, Walter Lippmann was the guy who beat the drums for a U.S. entrance into World War I. And then when he was subject for the draft, he explained he had a sick father, which he didn't. And then that he was too important to be wasted as cannon fodder and should be given a top Washington job. These are the, these are the honest, objective journalists that, that run our country. I used to know a guy who was an Arab expert. He was also pro-Muslim, but he told me that uh, in the entire State Department, there was only one person who could, who uh, actually was competent in Arabic, and who knew the different enough about the different Arabic dialects to know the difference between talking Iraqi Arabic and Egyptian Arabic. And this person was named April Jalaspi. And she was the one who told Saddam Hussein that obviously operating under orders from James Baker, who was one of the more competent people we've had working in the State Department, that we had no interest in Kuwait. 
Well, then we changed our mind, and April Gillespie got hung out to dry, like she had made a mistake in relaying accurately the sentiments of, of her president and, and secretary of state. The, I tried to check up. She, she is uh, living under a code of silence in South Africa, as uh, I think as an ambassador or uh, something down there. So I've talked to, a, I have a friend who's a, a Chinese expert and a friend who's a Russian expert who regularly uh, advised the CIA. And when they ask for a show of hands of who's fluent in Russian or Chinese, they get one or two liars who raise their hands and are quickly exposed for not knowing. So this is, we, 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 we pay good salaries to people who are supposed to be experts on these subjects. Remember when uh, Condoleezza Rice went to Russia and some reporter said, well, you have a PhD in Russian studies. Could you please address our audience in Russian? Just a few words. It'll make them so happy. Her answer was, oh, your language is so difficult and it has so many case endings. I really don't want to try. How, how, how can we hire people like that? By the way, don't try. My view is don't trust anybody named Rice at the State Department. <laughs> well, I don't know if we can trust anyone at the State Department, Dr. Fleming. But and speaking of trust, my generation is told that there, or at least they, we were told, that there were newsmen of integrity, people that we could trust. And these would have been people like Walter Cronkite. And all that we have today are pygmies like Bill O'Reilly. So as someone who actually you know, watched Walter Cronkite, uh, Edward R. Murrow, people like that, can you make a distinction, or shall I ask, is there a distinction between the Bill O'Reilly's Edward R. Murrow's, uh, sorry, between the Bill O'Reilly's and the Edward R. Murrow, Walter Cronkite's of the world? Or is this simply yeah. an illusion in my mind? No. The, the difference, uh, there are a couple of differences um, and, that make Cronkite and uh, Edward R. Murrow better. They didn't go to journalism school. Of course, neither did, neither did O'Reilly, but a lot of these boys go to journalism school. And that, the, the journalism school is designed to keep you as dumb as an elementary school teacher. In other words, you learn rules of journalism. You just don't, you just don't develop your mind uh, and, and give it the information that could make you possibly right. And of course, they had greater personal dignity because they come from a different generation. But essentially, uh, all, the, the profession of journalism is not a profession. It's, it's something for hacks. Uh, and lying, plagiarism, character assassination are all in a day's work for the so-called journalist. This has always been true. Daniel Defoe was, was doing journalism. He's a very talented, brilliant writer in the, in the late 17th, early 18th century. But Defoe was a spy and a hack, a, a, government, uh, a government stooge. Benjamin Franklin Bates, uh, uh, Franklin's, uh, Franklin's uh, what, uh, uh, <laughs> illegitimate son, was a, was a notorious lying editor uh, in the years of of the early American Republic. There's the the, uh, the British press lords that, that Chesterton and his brother uh, Cecil are constantly ridiculing. Their American counterparts, the great uh, Pulitzer, William Randolph Hearst. There's a <clears throat> famous uh, poem by uh, the uh, English wit Humbert Wolfe, and this is all usually quoted, but it's never quoted by journalists. Uh, you cannot hope to bribe or twist, thank God, the British journalist, but seeing what the man will do unbribed, there's no occasion to. The, uh, the, this is, and this was written, oh, in the 1920s. So the, the, there has never been a time 
when we've had any press except the yellow press. There has never been a time when the press was not partisan. Where it was better a hundred years ago, or, or even 75 years ago, you would work for, today there's a paper called the Arizona Republic, but papers used to announce either in their title or on their editorial page where they stood. You know, they were a Democrat or a Republican paper. They were liberal or conservative. They backed this or that interest, and it was upfront, so everybody knew they would lie in praise of their party and, and lie to the detriment of the other party. And so if you wanted to have any kind of objectivity, you had to read two or three different newspapers uh, to get the point of view. The, the Italians, and to some extent the French, still know this. So in, in Italy, you know what the, where, where the papers stand, and there's much, more, uh, much greater variety of point of view. There were even pro-fascist papers in the 1990s still in, uh, in, in Italy. So you could pick up, I used to read uh, three papers, because there was like the, 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 the moderate conservative papal, Il Giornale in Milan, and then you could read La Repubblica, the Corriere della Sera, but then you could also read you know, the, the communist press, Avanti, and if you read that, you could, you could begin to triangulate. But in America, where we have this myth of objectivity, the result is that, <clears throat> that they all are, are, are speaking from the same script. In fact, from the same page of the same script. So people think they're getting variety when they turn on Fox News or read the Wall Street Journal. No, they're just getting a slightly different shade of, of a dark pink. And there's no, all of, the, all of the assumptions are shared. That's why somebody like Megyn Kelly can leave Fox News and move over to NBC. Because she, she, maybe she'll change the opinion she mouths, but it's not really I important. The whole, of course, from my point of view, <clears throat> and I've been saying this for years, the whole idea that we should be concerned with what is new, what is faddish, what is fashionable, is uh, it's, it's, be, it's listening to village gossip. At least when you listen to village gossip, though, it's gossip down at the well, the women are talking, and it's all about people they know. But when we, what we call news is all about people we don't know. It's about the Kardashian sisters, or it's about it's about some some celebrity somewhere, either in Hollywood or New York or Washington, their latest illegitimate child, their latest drug overdose. But the entire concept of what's up, what's new, it is morally corrosive. There was a famous law uh, in uh, the, the ancient city of Thury, which was a Greek colony founded by idealists in southern Italy, and they had a law that uh, if somebody went down to the harbor when a ship came in and said, what's new, they would be fined. And I think it's a very wholesome law. But in a certain sense, Dr. Fleming, you can't blame them. This is probably what they're taught in journalism schools, is to, to get in front of the news, get current, go, you know, report on, on everything that's happening. And, and so perhaps they're simply a victim of their own so-called education. Yeah. In the, in the good old days of, say, H.L. Mencken, there were no journalism schools. And, or, or, you know, our friend Clyde Wilson was a, a newspaper man and he, he, uh, in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, and he worked the police beat. You spent all day, you know, going down to the police court, hanging out with the cops, asking what's going on, following them around, trying to get the who, where, what, when, and why questions answered. 
And uh, there's a there's a actually a fairly amusing movie called Teacher's Pet, where Clark Gable plays a hardened hard bitten old uh, newspaper editor, and he hears about some young attractive teacher of journalism at the at at I don't know City College in New York, and so he goes to takes her class just to see what it's like. And of course, that's Doris Day, and naturally they fall in love. And you know, but the 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 contrast is, you know, she's an idealist. And finally, at near the end of the movie, he says, you know, your father won a Pulitzer Prize for being a great journalist. But I look at his newspaper, and he starts quoting all this nonsense, you know, village gossip nonsense. He said, you know, we in the big city, we have to, we work hard, we pound the pavement, we don't go to school, we learn this, you know, as a as a we learn it by apprenticeship. And in the good old days, they were crooked, liar, and bribe-taking, but at least they learned their trade. Today, when you go to journalism school, you learn nothing except to parrot what every generation of college-educated people has been told. No history, no philosophy, uh, uh, hardly any mathematics, no no logic, no ability to, to, to try to discern true from false. Look at I mean, just read the the editorial page of the New York Times. It's just extraordinary, the bad grammar, the incorrect usage. Or listen to NPR, where they think the word that uh, all these oo sounds in English, like tour, are pronounced tor. I don't know where this comes from, but it's extraordinary, the degeneration of language among people who are <clears throat> paid to be expert users. But you know, to uh, uh, what am I, I used to I used to write for the Spectator uh, in in London. Now I wasn't I wasn't on staff, but I wrote pretty often. And the two stars of the Spectator were our friend Taki, who wrote uh, this journal uh, column called The High Life about the rich and famous, and Jeffrey Bernard, uh, who wrote about waking up in the gutter in a pool of vomit. It's uh, on a regular basis, uh, and his column was the Low Life. And Jeffrey Bernard once said famously that journalism is the only thinkable alternative to working. Now, that's the highest definition of journalism I know. Journalists are unreflective propagandists who repeat whatever they heard from earlier generations of propagandists who taught them, who indoctrinated them. Um, in, in the 20th century, there was the occasional H.L. Mencken who came along. Mencken could be uh, dishonest and childish, but, you know, he was, he was a, a well-read person who also knew how to hit the pavement and, and get the story, and he would say things that were unpredictable or uncomfortable. There have been very few people other than editorial writers like that in recent years. I think of... Uh, <clears throat> Alex Coburn, for example, who was on the far left, but I, I, I never really caught Alex deliberately lying, and, uh, and on many, many stories, many, many different, uh, both international and domestic stories, he, he had a capacity for seeing, th- cutting through the fog and seeing what was going on. It may be that he grew up in a communist household and where the uh, where there were nothing but propaganda lies, and even though he never left the left, he got he got pretty fed up with uh, with his father's brand of, of communist propaganda. These people are not interested in truth. They have a, they have only one uh, profession, which is cheerleading. So, if if there are anybody who actually speak their mind openly, 
in uh, in the American press, they they get shunned very quickly. It's like you know in America, one of the favorite if you if you ask what did you think of Julie Andrews and the Sound of Music, and you say I, it's a horrible movie, I can't stand the music, and I and Julie Andrews has a face that belongs in radio. All right, that's extreme, but you know if you say anything, or if you just say, oh well, it's not one of my favorite movies, the answer is, <clears throat> well, why don't you say what you really think? Well, why would anybody say anything but what they really think? I mean, as long as you're not being deliberately offensive to the person you're talking about or to one of their good friends. But candor is in the worst of taste today. <laughs> I don't know. We, that's why we don't have an Oscar Wilde. We think Bill O'Reilly is somebody who's a straight shooter. This is, this is extremely funny. He's, you know, he was a high school teacher who was used to bullying adolescents. And so somebody who, and then so he's taken that attitude that I could push people around, and you you give him a TV show, and he then imposes his ignorance and effrontery on his audience, and they think he's wonderful. You know, all, his audience is up after all these allegations that he has behaved pretty much the way most everybody in the national media does behave. If there, if democracy were a good thing, and it depended on having a free and honest press, democracy would be would be long gone. As but of course, since it's a myth, we don't have to worry about that. I think that's a good place for us to end today's episode. Thanks as always for your time, Dr. Fleming. We look forward to continuing these discussions on so-called "quote unquote" democracy and the so-called "quote unquote" free press. We will see you on our next episode. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time. On behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.